small section from Romans chapter 5. And one of the main points of these couple of verses here is the timing of God. And uh, one of a saying I think we all know and understand is that timing is everything, right? Um, we, we understand these things. I, I love to read history, and I've, just, I've been slowly working my way through this um, biography of George Washington and just all the different things that are going on in this guy's life. Um, and so I just got into the part where, it start, where he has sort of taken on the role of the general and leading the Continental Army and, and you know, fighting the British. And it's just really interesting because there's things, I'm learning so many things that I didn't know. And I didn't know that at the beginning, right after like Lexington and Concord and those first sort of things that happened, like if the British had just attacked like right then, I, th- this book records that there was, a, there was only enough gunpowder for everyone in the army to shoot five shots in the Continental Army. That's all they had. Like there were so many different places where if the British had attacked, like they would have been done for. You know, this, it would have been squashed within the first six months. Um, and they don't. And you can call that what you will if the Lord's timing on that. Um, but it's just... It's so true, and it happens so often in our lives, that timing is some of the most important things that, we, that happen. And this is what we see here in these first couple of verses. This idea, right, that while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ has died for the ungodly. And it's an interesting statement. There's no explanation of it. We don't get as to why Paul says that when Christ was born and when he died was the exact right time and we may even look over the old testament and think well it seems like maybe instead of flooding the planet um that could have been a good time for christ to come right lots of people could have been saved or maybe during the exile right instead of having moses do it and lead them all why not send jesus who would have been much better at that job or what about when the kingdom starts to fall and the kings become worse and worse and worse And we can look to the Old Testament over and over and over again and think to ourselves, that seems like a really good time. Why not then? Why why not Genesis 3? Why not right on the heels of the first sin? Just, man, just stop it right where it started. No more sin needed to happen. Jesus could have come in that moment. And so I don't think it's inappropriate for us to ask, why was it the right time? Even if we don't have necessarily a clear answer, We don't know exactly why Christ was born and died when he did, but we do know that it was exactly right. I think it's safe to assume that if Christ had died before the law, if Christ had died before the kingdom, right, if Christ had died before the sacrificial system, you see, Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king, and he's the perfect one. If he had come before we saw really bad prophet, priests, and kings, we might not really understand what it means for him to be the perfect fulfillment. You see, it's only when we see somebody do a really bad job that we appreciate when someone does it really well. We can ask why so long, easily a thousand years after the reign of Solomon before Jesus comes, And when we look at the New Testament and we look at the interactions that Jesus has, it seems like 
The Jews and Israel as a whole are probably in the most self-righteous point in human history. You see, when Jesus comes onto the scene, how many Pharisees does he, does he meet? And they're like, oh yeah, you're right. I'm a pretty bad guy. I'm pretty terrible. I'm a sinful person. I really need your help. Not often. You see, Jesus comes at the perfect time because he comes into a world where people think that they are deserving of being delivered. You have all these Pharisees, you have the Sanhedrin, and they're running around, and this whole time, they're expecting the Messiah to come and free them from the Roman Empire, and they think that they deserve it. In, in short, most of Israel, if not everybody, is in denial. You see, they saw themselves as holy and oppressed by Rome. They wanted someone to come and overthrow that form. You know, and, and it's interesting because we look at it and we say, like, why would you guys think that? Like, don't you, don't you see what's going on here? But we forget that they have a history of this, right? There's this repetition that a foreign ruler comes in to judge Israel and then God comes in and he sends a prophet and saves them from that and they're delivered. And so this has happened over and over and over again. And so it's not really outside of what is normal for the Israelites at this time to think. God's just going to do it again. There's a foreign oppressor here once again, and God's going to save us from that. And the problem is, is that they see themselves as very much similar to the enslaved Israel of Egypt. And Jesus comes and says to them, repent and believe in the Messiah. Not that you are holy, but that you are unholy, and that you need a Messiah to save you, not from Rome, but from yourself. And so Jesus comes at the perfect time. He comes to rescue them from their own sin. Now, if we put all the speculation aside, I don't think it's, once again, I don't think it's necessarily inappropriate to think about it or ask it. But really, the best and truest answer to this question is why is this the perfect time? Is because this is when God decided to do it. Right? He doesn't have to explain himself to us. It doesn't, we don't have to understand why Jesus came at this time. We don't have to lay out 50 reasons and say, oh, now I see. Yeah, you're right, God. This was the right time. Whether we understand it or not, God did it so it's right. I think the application is obvious, right? How many of you are waiting on God to do something in your life, and you're just thinking to yourself, like, Lord, I'm really trying to be patient, and it really seems like now is the time for this to happen, and I don't understand why you are making me wait months, maybe years. How many of you have been praying for somebody for years that they would come to know Jesus? regularly praying for people and you look and you pray and you get to your knees and you ask God why is it now the time why is it today the time I don't understand what you're doing I don't understand your timing but God does exactly what he wants exactly when he wants and it's always perfect it's always what he wants now we only ask this question when things come slowly how often do we question God's timing when something good happens much faster than you expected it to? Never, right? In fact, a lot of the times in those moments, we forget to bring praise to the Lord that something came much sooner than we thought it would. And so I think the answer is, Christ came at the perfect time 
Because this is when God decreed that it would happen. It's perfect because God did it. The second thing to notice is that Christ has died for the ungodly. So he comes at the perfect time and he dies for those who are ungodly. We think about the death of Christ sometimes and we think, oh, what a tragedy. What a sad thing that has happened. Sometimes people in our world use this term or this phrase as cosmic child abuse. This is the plan of the Father carried out by God the Son and applied to our hearts by God the Spirit. This is a glorious and wonderful thing that has happened. Oftentimes we're saddened by this. Sometimes, right? I mean, it's been a while, but I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, saw The Passion when it came out, whatever that was, like 15 years ago or something. Is really good and it was really well done. But you see, the the only thing that I the only problem that I've ever had with that movie is that it's really sad. Like we look at it and we think, oh, poor Jesus. He took a lot of physical pain for us. But this thing that he did is the most wonderful and beautiful thing that has happened in all of human history. It is a glorious thing that has come. This is not a tragedy. That was not a, tra- a tragic movie, and the act of Jesus on the cross is not a tragedy. It is the greatest act of love that has ever been displayed. Paul goes on to put this to a point, right? In verse 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ has died for us. We would scarcely die for a righteous person. But God, while we were his enemy, while we were sinners, he died for us. There is no greater act of love. And what's worse is that we look to Jesus, and we, but we would never do this, right? Paul knows that we would never do this. He points it out to show how much greater it is, the love of Christ, right? Because we would never do it. It's as true as it is we would almost assuredly not die for someone who is righteous. I think there is a difference between the two people that Paul brings up. That we would scarcely die for a righteous person. In other words, we would scarcely die for the person who is just always trying to do the right thing all the time. I live out in the country on a dirt road. It's like six miles before I get to the main road and the speed limit is 35. And when there's somebody driving 35, that whole six miles, rarely do I think, man, this guy is doing all the right things. I would die for him. Sort of the opposite of usually what I think. Like, I think, man, how much concentration does it take to only drive 35 on this very straight dirt road? You see, this is not who we are. This is not in us that we would want to die for the person who is always doing the right thing. And then he says, even for a good person, one would dare to die. Someone who is wonderful and who is kind and who is loving to us. In fact, the only people that I am confident in my life that I would die for is the four people in my household. I've been doing these um, interviews, examinations with the elder candidates and I've gotten, you know, I asked the same questions to all the different guys. 
And I get different answers in all the different questions that I ask, but there is one universal answer that has been the same every time. I've asked these men, is, there is a qualification, right? Be gentle and not to be violent. And I've asked them, when is it okay, if ever, to use violence? And universally, they have all said, if somebody breaks into my house and tries to hurt my family. Men, I think it's a good thing that we would stand in front of a gun to protect our family, or that we would use a gun to protect our family. But I don't know if there's anybody else, right? Think about it. Is there anybody else in your life that you would do that for other than those who live in your household? You see, we would do it, but we don't want to. We don't seek it out. We're not trying to find this. And if there was any other way in that situation, we would take the other way, right? I don't want to die for my kids. If I had to, I would, but I'm not asking God to do it. And here is Jesus, not just dying for somebody who fully is committed to him, who fully loves him, who fully obeys him, but he dies for his enemies, those who mock him and spit at him while he's on the cross. Those who fall asleep over and over again in the night before he is going to be arrested. They can't even stay awake long enough to pray with him. And he's dying willingly for them. He doesn't run away. He deserved to not do this. In fact, what he deserved was to get away from all of that. What was owed to him was not to die. And yet that's what he does. While we were his enemies, while we are still sinners, Christ goes to the cross and he dies for us. Now there's a question, and I think it's worth asking. Because I was reading some commentaries, you know, I, I, I tend to do that. I try to read people who are much smarter than myself, who have read these things and given their thoughts. And I like to read... R.C. Sproul, he wrote a really good commentary on the book of Romans. If you know anything about Sproul, um, he's very, very dedicated. Well, I mean, he's passed away now. He was dedicated to the ideas of predestination and Calvinism. And I'm reading this, and he just immediately jumps to that God didn't die for everybody, but that he only died for the church. And so I want to ask this question, did Christ die for all the ungodly or only the ungodly that are the elect? Verse 8, verse 8 hints at this a little bit, right? Paul is writing to the church of Rome. He says that Christ has died for us. But I think it's easily argued that Christ died for more than just Paul and the church in Rome. And so we don't have a definitive answer. And the reason I bring this up is because we, th there is a little bit of controversy within our church body about this question, right? And people are wanting to divide over it and people are wanting to leave the church or whatever. I mean, there's, this is happening and we're not just going to push it to the side or ignore it. This is a question. And the reason that I bring it up is because when we come to the scripture with our own idea of what we think we know is true, it can guide us down a path. I'm not going to say the wrong path. I'm saying it just makes us look and see scriptures. Because here's what I'm saying is when I read Sproul, he was just like, look, here it is. This means that God has only died for some. And I'm thinking, I don't see that. I agree with Sproul about some of these things. But when I read this, I don't see it. Right? I'm not. And the temptation is to interject our ideas into the text. To think that it says something that it doesn't clearly say. 
In fact, I would say that the Bible, I think, is really ambiguous on this topic, and I don't know why. Maybe Paul doesn't really know the answer, which is why he never really gives us an answer. Or maybe he assumed everyone would know the answer, and so he doesn't address it. I don't know what is going on, but I'm telling you this. Whether, no matter which side of the fence you land on, what does it really change? And that's the question that I asked myself this week. You see, maybe we don't have an answer because it doesn't change the way that we do things. No matter where you land, we still evangelize everyone. Because I don't know. I don't know if everyone is given the opportunity to repent and believe. I don't know if only some are given that opportunity. It doesn't matter because even if it's only some, I don't know who those people are. And so I'm going to go and evangelize everyone. And so when we ask this question and we, and we dwell on it too much or we, or we stay here too long or we're trying to find the answer, really when the Bible is not clear about the answer, I think it's not bad. In fact, not only is it not bad, but like I am in the process of reading this book that's like 800 pages on just this topic, on just limited atonement, because I want to understand. I want to know what the Bible has to say and I want to read from other people who understand this idea better than me. But at the end of the day, No matter which side is right, I'm going to evangelize anybody who will listen. I'm going to talk to everyone who will listen to me about Jesus because I don't know the answer to this question. And here's the thing. It's really interesting because in that book alone, I read a really important statement. And it says this. Where we move to doctrinal synthesis is made, sorry, where the move to doctrinal synthesis is made too quickly, distortion occurs. When we jump to the conclusion too fast, it's unclear. R.C. Sproul is a million times smarter, was a million times smarter than I could ever be. But I read his commentary and I thought, man, that's alarming to me. That you would read this and immediately jump to that conclusion. I don't think it's fair. I don't think you can get there from here, right? And I say all of this as a warning. Because here's the thing, we all have... We all have convictions. We all believe certain things about the Bible. And that may look different than what other people believe in the church, whom we are brothers and sisters in Christ with. And that is 100% okay. And what I'm telling you this is read the Bible with an open mind. Don't go to it and think, this is what's true. I'm going to find verses to prove what's true. You read the Bible and you think, hey, that actually challenges the thing that I thought was true. Maybe... I've been wrong. Maybe I should rethink what I believe. Maybe I should go to it again and re-explore and try and understand more deeply. I don't think this passage even addresses this issue. And yet, I read multiple commentaries that brought it up. And so my, my, my warning to you is to be careful. Last thing is this. God's love is manifest to us. <coughs> the first way is that Christ has died for us, right? The second way is in verse 9. Look at, look at it with me again. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. You see, while we were enemies of Christ, he died for us. And that death has brought about justification, which has saved us from the wrath of God. Now, unfortunately, we live in a world that doesn't believe in the wrath of God at all, or we look at it as like 
Ah, that's kind of like when I would steal a cookie at my grandmother's house and she'd slap me on the wrist. Um, that's not what the wrath of God looks like, right? It's so much more severe than that. I want to remind you what we are being saved from. Genesis 6, 7, and 8. God floods the earth to show his wrath for people's sin. And he spares one family. Now, we've read that story, right? If you grew up in church and you went to Sunday school, you probably drew cute little pictures of a boat with the animal's head sticking out of the windows, and it was wonder. Do you ever think about that story? About how the flooding came about? About the fact that it's raining, and it just doesn't stop, and all of a sudden the people are walking around, and now the, now the roads and the paths are flooded, and then the, their, their houses or whatever, whatever they're living in, their tents are being washed away, and slowly but surely the water is rising, and you can imagine that the anxiety is rising right along with it. It's getting worse and worse and deeper and deeper. And all of a sudden now they're like having to climb trees. And anybody who is around Noah is probably beating on the boat saying, Noah, let me in. Can you imagine the trauma that Noah went through having to watch all of these people around him die? Begging for help. This is the wrath of God. How many of you don't read the book of Numbers because you think it's just a book of Numbers? Turn to Numbers 16. These are some familiar stories. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time here, but I think it's important that we are reminded of what the wrath of God looks like. Numbers 16, this is Korah's rebellion. Let's just look at verses 31 to 35. And as soon as he had finished speaking all of these words, the ground under them split apart. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them with their household and all the people who belonged to Korah and all of their gods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol. And the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst, from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were under them, around them fled at their cry for they said, lest the earth swallow us. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering their incense. That's the wrath of God. That's not a slap on the wrist. That is total destruction for their sin. Flip over just a few more. I picked this one because it's terrifying. Numbers 21. Right there at the beginning. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Etherim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. The Lord heeded the voice of Israel and gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. That is exactly preceding what we're about to read. Just remember that God defeated the... the, the enemies of Israel, and this is what they do. From Mount Hor, they sent out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, 
And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out out of Egypt so that we would die in the wilderness? For there's no food and there's no water. And we loathe this worthless food. And then the Lord sent fire. Now imagine they're on fire and they're biting you. I mean, what in the world? God doesn't just look at our sin and say, ah, it's not that big of a deal. Don't worry about it. It'll be okay. God is serious about sin. His wrath is scarier than you think it is. I want to close with this. There's two questions. Number one, why is this wrath so severe? And number two, what does reconciliation look like? Because the last couple of verses here, that's what we see. God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus. Through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can be reconciled back to God. This wrath will not be poured on us, but it will be poured on Christ. And I want you to flip to Ezekiel 16. Because here's the thing. We look at these stories and numbers and we might say, God, what's the deal? Just, you know, calm down a little bit. You see, because we see our sin very differently than the way God sees our sin. We see it as not a big deal. And so we say to God, why are you so angry? Why is there so much wrath? We don't see our sin the way that God sees it. Ezekiel 16 is one of the most graphic chapters in the Bible, to the point where because I knew there would be children here, I softened some of the language. Adults, go home and read it in the ESV without some of the changes, right? I'm using the word unfaithful and I'm doing it on purpose because... I I want to be sensitive to that. This is how God sees your sin. And he still is willing to reconcile you. Listen. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. And say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem... Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut. Nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you. But you were cast out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. But when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and you became tall and you arrived at full adornment. Your body was formed and your hair had grown, yet you were unclothed. And when I passed by you again and I saw you, behold, you are at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered you. 
I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. I bathed you with water. I washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments. And I put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and you advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed upon you, declares the Lord God. but you trusted in your beauty and you were unfaithful because of your renown and lavished your unfaithfulness on the passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and you made for yourself colorful shrines and on them you were unfaithful. The like has never been seen nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and my silver which I had given to you and you made for yourself images of men and with them you were unfaithful. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them You set my oil and my incense before them. (laughs) And also the bread that I gave you, that I fed with fine flour and with oil and honey, you set before them for a pleasing aroma. And so it was, declares the Lord God. And you took your sons and daughters, whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your unfaithfulness so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and you delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all of your abominations and your unfaithfulness, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. And after all of your wickedness, woe, Woe to you, declares the Lord God. You built for yourself a vaulted chamber. You made yourself a lofty place in every square. At the head of every street, you built a lofty place and you made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your unfaithfulness. You also were unfaithful with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying your unfaithfulness. To provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you and diminished your allotted portion and delivered you to the greed of your enemies. The daughters of the Philistines who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. And you were also unfaithful with the Assyrians because you were not satisfied. Yes, you were unfaithful with them. And still you were not satisfied. You multiplied your unfaithfulness also with the trading land of Chaldea. And even with the, and even with this, you were not satisfied. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all of these things. 
the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square. Yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your unfaithfulness. So you were different from other women in your unfaithfulness. No one solicited you. You gave payment while no payment was given. Therefore, you were different. Therefore, unfaithful Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your unfaithfulness with your lovers and with all of your abominable idols and because of the blood of your children that you gave to them. Therefore, behold, I will gather all of your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those who loved you and all of those who hated I will gather them against you. From every side I will uncover your nakedness to to them that they may see you exposed. And I will judge you as a woman who commits adultery and sheds blood are judged. And I will bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. I will give you into their hands and they shall throw down your vaulted chamber and they will break down your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes and take your beautiful jewels and leave you naked and bare. They shall bring up a crowd against you, and they shall stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. And they shall burn your houses and execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women. I will make you stop your unfaithfulness, and you shall also give payment no more. So will I satisfy my wrath on you, and my jealousy shall depart from you. I will be calm and will... And will no longer be angry because you have not remembered the days of your youth, but have enraged me with all of these things. Therefore, behold, I have returned your deeds upon your head, declares the Lord God. Have you not committed lewdness in addition to all of your abominations? That is how God sees your sin and mine. And he has every right to turn away from us. But now look at verse 59. This is unbelievable. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. You have despised the oath and breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish you for an everlasting covenant. And then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger. And I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you and you shall know that I am the Lord. That you remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. When I atone for you for all that you have done declares the Lord. That God would reconcile us back to Him is unthinkable. If you don't see your sin the way that God just described your sin, you need to. You need to understand that this is what God looks at when He sees our sin. And He still sent His Son to die for you on the cross. He is still willing to save you and to forgive you and to justify you and to reconcile Himself to you. That is the God whom we serve. There is no greater news than that. Let us pray.
Father, we are more than unworthy. I don't know that there is a word to describe how vile and evil we are. And yet, you have loved us anyway. And yet, you have sent your Son to pay the price for our unfaithfulness. We turn from you. We turn to other gods. We turn to other things. We worship things of this world. It's an abomination to you, and you still love us. Lord, we have no other response this morning but to be thankful that your love is everlasting, that your patience has not run out, and that you have brought salvation to those who repent and believe. Father, we are so grateful. Help us to see our sin the way that you do. Father, we are tempted to belittle it, to downplay it, make it seem far less horrific than it is. Help us to have better understanding. Help us that every time we sin, that we will think back to this passage, to this chapter, that this is what you look at. This is what you, you see when you see our sin, Lord, that it would inspire us to greater heights, to greater levels of obedience, to fight longer, to fight harder against the temptations that are always around us. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.